You'll notice that uh, Pastor Cole has changed tack uh, on um, what he's preaching on. He's going to the book of Psalms. And we are told in the leaflet that um, you'll concentrate in the next three weeks on Psalm 41, 31 and 16. And it's quite interesting that um, I've been going through the Psalms personally myself and, and I've got stuck on Psalm 38, 39, 40 and 41 for a long time. And um, because they are, they're wonderful Psalms but they are very challenging and very confronting uh, for example, if you turn to the book of Psalms and go to Psalm 39, just read verse 6. It says, Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. Now just think that through, what that is. Psalm 39, verse um, 13, where David prays to the Lord, Look away from me that I may rejoice again. What a prayer. And Psalm 40, verse 1, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and heard my cry. A beautiful psalms about David's personal relationship with the Lord. And for Carl, he's preaching on Psalm 41 this morning. And let's turn to that and let's read it together. The Word of God where it says, Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes to see me, he speaks falsely, with his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has beset him. And he will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. Shall we just pray? Father, we thank you for your word and how you speak to us through the Psalms. Father, they speak about having a personal relationship with you. And Father, these are powerful words that we read. And so, Lord, our prayer is that your Spirit will make that all the more clear to us as to what you're saying. So, Lord, be with Carl 
as he would proclaim it to us this morning. Father, give him courage. Give him what he needs to say as your servant. Father, we pray for the Sunday school who are meeting right now. Father, be with the teachers and be with the students that they too might grow into a personal relationship with you. Father, hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Ben. It's uh, great to be here again this morning and uh, if you're visiting here this morning, let me add my welcome as well to, uh, to that of Ben and uh, to, to say welcome to our new series, I guess, uh, on the book of Psalms. Uh, if uh, you were here at the end of last year, you'll remember that before Christmas uh, we did a few Psalms as well. Uh, so we're going back to a few things this morning. We're going back to the book of Psalms and we're going back to the cardigan. The cardigan's come out again today. And uh, I know that some of the... I know Gwyn's particularly happy uh, about the cardigan. So uh, I, I thought we'd just pull that out again. But uh, it's, good, it's, it's good to be back to the cardigan. It's, good to be be, it's better to be back to the Psalms, isn't it? Uh, and uh, as Ben said, over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing uh, a few Psalms, uh, as, and Psalms which are taken up in the New Testament uh, as referring to Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. Uh, we're going to be doing today Psalm 41 and then, as I said in the leaflet, next week Psalm 31 and then uh, on Easter Sunday Psalm uh, 16. Uh, now, if you don't know uh, where Psalm 41 is taken up in the New, Text, uh, New Testament, you might like to turn with me to, uh, to John 13, to the Gospel of John. John 13, verse 18. And this is, uh, Jesus is about to be betrayed, he's about to go to the cross, he's about to die. This is his last night with the disciples. And in verse 18 of chapter 13 he says, uh, I'm not referring to all of you, uh, I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfil the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. So Jesus is saying that uh, in his betrayal by Judas uh, on the night before he died, uh, Jesus is saying that that fulfilled the expectation in Psalm 41 Uh, And verse 9, where it says, Even my close friend, uh, whom I trusted, who who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So in one way, I guess it's pretty clear, isn't it, how how Psalm 41 was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Uh, David uh, had a friend who turned against him and and, uh, and Judas turned against Jesus. Uh, And so I guess it's pretty clear to see the connections. But this psalm also raises some questions, I guess, when we think about how it's fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, in this psalm, David says he sinned, but Jesus never sinned, so what do we make of, of that? Uh, and if this uh, psalm is, is about Jesus, 
then what do we do when we read it? Does it it mean anything for us? What are we supposed to understand about Psalm 41 uh, for our lives? So there's a few questions I think that we we need to try and wrestle with as we read this psalm. Uh, And as we uh, do that this morning, I want to think about, uh, firstly, what this psalm meant to David as he was writing it, and then sort of draw some lines out to to Jesus in the New Testament to, to see how it was fulfilled in him. And as we do both those things, to try and wrestle with Uh, how we fit into this psalm and and, and what it means for us. Well, the psalm begins uh, in verses 1 to 3 with with really just a statement of fact. Verse 1, Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. What does that deliverance look like? Well, verse 2 and 3 go on to to say, The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. Uh, He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desires of his foe. The, the Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. There are two really big Old Testament themes uh, in those verses. The first is life and the second is land. David is effectively uh, asking and answering the question, what kind of person lives? What kind of person does God sustain? What kind of person does God look after? What uh, kind of person does God allow to live in his presence? That what, that's what life and land were about in the Old Testament. It was about living in the presence of God, living with God. And, and David is saying, who gets to live with God? And the answer that he gives is the one who has regard for the weak. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. It's kind of reminiscent, isn't it, of the Beatitudes, which we did uh, a, a few weeks ago. Blessed are the merciful. It kind of ties in with that. Who will inherit the kingdom of heaven? God says in Psalm 41 that the merciful will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The merciful are those who live with God. So far so good, I suppose, but David realises that there's a problem with that. He says in verse 4, I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. David knows that God is good to the merciful, but he realises that he himself has failed to show mercy. It's easy, isn't it, uh, to instead of being merciful, to be merciless, to have no mercy. Uh, We receive mercy from God and yet we withhold it from other people. We expect uh, people to forgive us when we wrong them, but we never forgive them when they sin against us. We say an unkind word to someone, uh, and then we apologise for it, and we expect them to forgive us. Someone says an unkind word to us, they they apologise for it, uh, and we hold a grudge. Jesus uh, tells the parable of that man, doesn't he, who gets into into debt. He he owes millions of dollars to his boss uh, and he goes and his boss says, well, you know what, I'm going to be merciful, I'm going to show you mercy, I'm going to forgive you that debt. And then the man goes out, uh, forgiven of this millions of dollars uh, and he runs into his co-worker and he says, you owe me five bucks, pay me my money. Jesus' point is that we readily receive mercy and yet we're unable to show it to others. 
We so easily, uh, don't we, apply the doctrine of justification by faith to ourselves. I'm saved and yet still a sinner. And yet we hesitate to apply it to other people in the church. They're saved yet still a sinner. In our minds, our sin is covered by Jesus' blood but the sins of other people in the church isn't. God shows mercy to us but we struggle to show mercy to others. Well, David's uh, enemies in this psalm have no doubt what God's response ought to be to that. They call uh, enthusiastically for David's head uh, basically to be cut off. Verse 5, my enemies say of mere malice, when will he die and his name perish? They can't wait for David to, to, to kick the bucket. They're standing around waiting for God to execute justice. Verse 7, all my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. They're picturing God judging him through this disease and through this sickness. They even uh, do what they can to speed things along. In verse 6 they say, whenever one comes to me, uh, comes to see me, David says, he speaks falsely. While his heart gathers slander, then he goes out and spreads it abroad. They're setting themselves up as as David's opponents. They're trying to undo him and worst of all, one of his closest friends has turned turned against him. Someone that he ate with, someone that he shared a meal with, someone uh, who he trusted has turned against him. And so with everyone turned against him, David does that one thing, the only thing really that he has left to do. He casts himself on the mercy of God. David knows that he doesn't deserve anything from God That's what mercy means. It means to get something that you don't deserve, doesn't it? Mercy means to get goodness when you deserve punishment. David knows that he can't plead for deliverance from God on the basis of his own mercy. So he pleads for deliverance from God on the basis of God's mercy. Who lives? Who gets to live? The one who's merciful. But I haven't been merciful. God, have mercy on me. That's what David's saying. Now, you might not have uh, people turning against you in the streets uh, and calling for God to rain down judgment on your head. You might not have friends uh, turning against you and and doing the same thing uh, as David experienced. But your awareness of your failures and your awareness uh, of your sins and, 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 and having failed to live up to God's standards, your awareness of that and, and Satan's lies that God's mercy is limited, those things might tempt you to despair of the mercy of God. But David realised in that situation where he had failed God, where he had failed to live up to God's standards, the only thing that he could do was to turn back to that same God and to trust in God's mercy. Uh, I don't know if you know the words uh, of that song, Before the Throne of God Above. It's a very old song. But in that song, uh, the writer says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. That notion is absolutely fundamental to the Gospel. We despair of God's mercy and yet there is nothing else to do 
but to cast ourselves on it and to trust as we look at the cross that his mercy is sufficient to cover our sins. Well, David uh, so far has recognised that God is good to the merciful and yet at the same time he recognises that he has not been as merciful as he should have been and so he pleads for God's mercy. But David's plea for God's mercy might seem at odds with what he goes on to say. Look at, uh, at verse 11 and verse 12. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. David is both acknowledging his sin and yet at the same time he seems to be saying that because of his own integrity uh, or literally because of his own blamelessness, that God will uphold him. How do those two things go together? How can he cast himself on the mercy of God and yet claim to to have integrity and to be blameless? How How do those things sit together? Well, far from being at odds with each other, those two ideas actually go hand in glove in the Old Testament. Uh, In the Old Testament, God constantly calls the people to blamelessness Uh, and particularly he calls the king to blamelessness. So let me read these words from uh, from 1 Kings chapter 9. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, God says this to Solomon, As for you, if you walk before me in integrity or blamelessness uh, of heart and uprightness, so if, if you walk before me in blamelessness of heart and uprightness as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Do you hear what God is saying? God is saying to Solomon, if you walk before me blamelessly, as David did, then I will establish your throne forever. How is it possible for David to claim to be blameless and to have integrity and at the same time appeal for mercy for his sins? How is it possible for God to say, if you're blameless like David was blameless? How do those things go together? David uh, was a man who infamously killed uh, another man so that he could steal his wife. How, How could David be blameless? The answer to that question becomes clear uh, as you realise that that idea of blamelessness was drilled into the people through the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Let me give you a, a few examples of that. Uh, if you've got your Bible uh, with you, turn back to Leviticus. Now, we looked at the beginning chapters of, uh, of Leviticus last year and I just want to read a few verses from that again from Leviticus chapter 1. So these sacrifices were establishing for the people the framework in which they thought about their relationship with God. And these things were being done daily and they were being reminded of them daily. And this, uh, this is what the, those sacrifices uh, say. So Leviticus uh, 1 verse 3, uh, if 
Uh, If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect, literally literally the same word, a blameless uh, animal. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, he is to offer a male without defect. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. If someone's offering is a fellowship offering and he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present before the Lord an animal without defect. Verse 6. If he offers an animal from the flock as a fellowship offering to the Lord, he is to offer a male or female without defect. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 3. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. And on and on it goes. In other words, what the sacrifices were drilling into these people was that, that there needed to be this blameless substitute, this substitute without defect on their behalf. The sacrifices presumed, presupposed that the people would not be blameless, that they would sin and God was pointing ahead to a mechanism to deal with that. God was pointing ahead to his provision of mercy through a blameless substitute. In other words, in the Old Testament, there were two strands to integrity or blamelessness. There was the pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of mercy. And both have to be held together. Without the pursuit of righteousness, without Uh, Sorry, the pursuit of righteousness without the the pursuit of mercy leads to legalism and to moralism, you know, where you think that you can make it to God. Uh, If you uh, all the time find yourself pursuing what God wants but never find on your lips words like, God have mercy on me, then there's good reason to wonder whether you've understood the gospel if it's all about doing but there's never any kind of pleading with God for mercy, then there's no gospel there. On the other hand, the pursuit of mercy without any regard to what God wants and the standards that God applies, that just leads to carelessness about sin and and to depravity. So if you find yourself trusting in the mercy of God but never praying Teach me your ways, O God, that I might walk in them. Then there's good reason to wonder whether you've understood the gospel because the gospel holds both together. It holds both the pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of mercy together. David himself pursued both. He pursued the kind of life that God desired. He, He pursued mercy to the poor. David was a merciful man. He wasn't like his enemies. His enemies who were opposing him, they were merciless. When he was poor, they, 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 they just called for his head. David was merciful and yet a sinner. Not because he, was, he wasn't merciful because he was better than they were. He was merciful because God was at work in him and yet at the same time, he was imperfect And so he called out to God for mercy in the hope of a blameless substitute. And so that then, unsurprisingly I guess, brings us to Jesus and to the fulfilment of this psalm 
uh, in Jesus. The Old Testament uh, portrays the need for two key things with respect to blamelessness, a blameless king and a blameless sacrifice and David was neither. He himself needed that mercy, didn't he, in order to live. Who can live with God? The merciful. Forgive me, God, because I I failed. David himself needed mercy. But both those ideas of a blameless king and a blameless substitute push us forward to the fulfilment of this psalm in Jesus and in the New Testament. You see, David, who wrote this psalm, was not simply any Old Testament believer. He was the king of God's people. He was the king, the man around whom God was constructing and forming this new community of people. They were a new community of people, not by virtue of anything that they were in themselves, but simply by virtue of the fact that they, that they were in connection with this king. They were in relationship with God's king. But the establishment of that, of that community, that new community, that new kingdom, was dependent on the appearance of a king who would be, and who would do, sorry, all that was in God's heart and mind. The new community of God required the appearance of a king who would be blameless and who would lead his people into blamelessness. The second strand, uh, which was woven into the fabric of the Old Testament, so the first strand was the blameless king. The second strand was that idea of the blameless substitute that needed uh, to to, uh, be presented to deal with the sin of the people. And already in the Old Testament there are strong indications that those two things needed to be knitted together, the blameless king and the blameless substitute. And in the person of Jesus Christ they were in the most profound way imaginable. In Jesus both those realities finally came together. Jesus was the perfect king, God's own son. God's own son who was crowned not on a throne but on a cross to pay for our sins, God's own son whose ultimate mark of blamelessness and obedience was the fact that he submitted to the cross. And with those realities in mind, that causes us to go back to this psalm and to read it in a whole new light. Verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 41 ask, who is the person who wins life in the presence of God? Who is the one whose life is given back to them? It's the person who has regard for the weak. And nobody in all of history has had such perfect regard for the poor and the helpless and the weak as God's perfect Son and our King, Jesus Christ. No one has done it, not David, not Solomon, not any of his sons showed regard as much as Jesus did. Where, Jesus, uh, where David failed, Jesus triumphs. This is what Isaiah 11 says about uh, the son of David uh, who would come, uh, the king that Jesus uh, would be. Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, uh, from his roots a branch will bear fruit, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. 
And here it is, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor. The king that God promised, the king that Jesus is, is a king who has regard for the weak and who because of that wins life in the presence of God. In verses 5 to 9 of Psalm 41, there's the opposition of the king's enemies. David's enemies who who rail against him. But unlike David who, who, uh, who, despite his integrity, his life was still marred by sin, unlike David, Jesus was perfect. He was the blameless king. And so this opposition of these enemies is even more outrageous. When Jesus was sentenced to death, he was sentenced to death for the crime of blasphemy. It was for claiming to be God. But far from being a crime, that was the truest thing that's ever been spoken in the world, wasn't it? Jesus was God and the Son of God. When when Judas turned against Jesus uh, and betrayed him, it wasn't because Jesus had sinned, but it was in spite of the fact that Jesus was the perfect Son of God. In verses 10 to 12, uh, the ground of the king's life, the ground of David's hope for life, is his integrity, it's his blamelessness. David hopes for a permanent position in the presence of God because of his blamelessness and righteousness. For David, that hope was grounded in God's mercy because he knew his sin. But for Jesus, his position in the presence of God is not grounded in God's mercy but in Jesus' perfection. Jesus was the perfect, blameless Son of God and he won life in the presence of God. And his integrity and his sacrifice become the ground not just for David's inclusion in the kingdom of heaven, not just for Jesus' inclusion in the kingdom of heaven, but ours as well. If we put our trust in Jesus, what belongs to him belongs to us as well. Ultimately then, I guess having said all that, which is quite a lot, ultimately then, as much as this psalm is is a call to to being merciful, uh, it's, it's a call more particularly to receive the mercy of God in his King Jesus Christ. It's it's ultimately not a call simply to be merciful but a call to follow and trust in God's King Jesus. That's what it's about. If on the one hand, like David's enemies, you reject the king, if like Judas you lift up your heel, so to speak, against Jesus, if you reject Jesus, ignore him, then the only prospect is judgment and death. Please don't choose that way. But if on the other hand this psalm is saying you follow Jesus and trust him, then what belongs to him belongs to you. His privileges become your privileges because as it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. The privileges of the king are the privileges of his people. He was righteous where we fail. He made a sacrifice that we could never make. 
In God's King, Jesus, both righteousness and mercy come together. And here it is, here is the message of this psalm. If you have trusted in Jesus, then everything that belongs to him belongs to you as well. And that includes both righteousness and mercy. In that light, I think, the last uh, few pleas of this psalm need to be kind of reread in the light of the gospel, in light of their fulfilment in Jesus Christ. And the last few words, I think, in that light read something like this. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. I know that you're pleased with Jesus. I know that because his enemies didn't ultimately triumph over him. But you raised him from the dead. Because of his integrity and his blamelessness, because of his blamelessness, you uphold me. And together with him, you set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of the whole earth, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we... uh, Thank you that you're a merciful God who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. Lord, we know that we're not blameless, that we fail you every day, And Lord, more often than not we fail not because we're striving to please you but simply because of our ignorance or our carelessness or our disinterest. And so Lord we pray that you would have mercy on us not because we deserve it but because You've given it freely in Jesus Christ. Not because we deserve it, but because he's won it for us through his obedience and his righteousness and through his death. Lord, if we doubt that you're willing to be merciful, help us to fix our eyes on the cross and to see your mercy and to believe in it, and to believe in Jesus. And Lord, having seen it, we ask that you'd open our hearts to be able to praise you, who is God from everlasting to everlasting. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.